full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That never crossed my mind, ever owning a restaurant, cooking in Richmond. I mean, it wasn't anywhere in the cards. In studio, Patrick Phelan, co-founder of Long Oven, the Richmond culinary upstart that was just recognized by Bon Appetit magazine as number three on its list of best new restaurants in America. What a journey from washing dishes to the New York City catering rat race to pop up in brick and mortar glory in the RVA. Do stay with us. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Sunday, November 10th at the National in downtown Richmond. Full Disclosure presents the band Not A Surf, one of my very favorites on the luck and grit and heartbreak and comebacks of 25 years in the music biz. I will interview the band, then they perform a full concert, and all of it is going to be taped for a documentary pilot. I mean, it being November, your ticket is pretty much getting you a turducken of content. Avoid most fees by getting your ticket in advance at the Nationals box office. Sunday, November 10th, Full Disclosure presents Not a Surf, right here in Richmond at the National. Join us. Joining me in studio in downtown RVA is Patrick Phelan, chef and co-owner of Long Oven, the precocious hatchling in Scott's edition that was just honored by Bon Appetit magazine as number three on its list of best new restaurants in America. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. And of course, Justin Lowe, restaurant critic at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I I am not on any lists. You're on our short list to come on this show. (laughs) Patrick, how do you feel, sir? Um, You know, you get this news yesterday. Yeah. Uh, You look cogent and sober in here. I understand, you know, it's very late in the afternoon. You just had a breakfast of hot coffee. (laughs) They've been honoring you throughout ever since you guys were a pop-up, but this was national news yesterday. Yeah, we've had a a great relationship with Bon App, starting with uh, Julia Kramer coming down for a pop-up several years ago at Sub Rosa. And then uh, came down again uh, last year during Fireflower Fork uh, and attended a meal. And we've had some small pieces in that magazine throughout, and it's been great that they've noticed what we've been doing. I'm feeling pretty good. You know, you'd like to expect to be recognized, but when it happens, I don't think you're ever really quite prepared for it. So I got that feeling inside my show. No, just saying. I, I want to quote from the review, Patrick, if you don't mind. And yeah. you-, you feel free to blush. You're already blushing, by the way. <laughs> Long Oven is the most <laughs> unlikely standout fine dining restaurant in America. The chefs, Andrew Manning, Megan Fitzroy Phelan, and Patrick Phelan, have little name recognition outside their hometown. Their restaurant is housed in a nondescript building in a rapidly developing neighborhood, clamoring more for taproom slash barbecue joints than for an austere-looking tasting menu spot. Scott's edition is in Richmond, a Richmond that's only very recently begun to draw attention as a dining destination. Well, I this route, you know, they talk about you guys, your team's circuitous 15-year epic uh, of, of, you know, this involves a stint in Alba, Italy, and many arduous hours in the catering world. I mean, there was that famous chapter in the book, what was it, Hot Box, about your catering misadventures in New York City. And you were a rock star, or an aspiring rock star in a former aspiring, life. Aspiring, yeah. So what? Let's take us back to that moment where Chef was in your future. You had the the hint of a glimmer of a glint in your eye that this was going to be in your future. Uh, I think playing music pretty early on around. Uh, I want to say ninety eight, ninety nine. I needed a job. I didn't grow up in a home that that cooked very much. I mean, my mom was a great cook, but it was pretty standard stuff. And my friend Rick got me a job at Helen's. Um, and Dave Shannon was the chef. The that. ancient restaurant yeah. here on Main Street. Like yeah. Helen's established 1935. Absolutely. And back then it had uh, white tablecloths and it was fine dining, uh, much, you know, a different restaurant back then. 
Um, and I got hired as a dishwasher and for a musician in Richmond. That's what a lot of us did because you had flexibility to leave for two weeks and go tour or band practice or whatever. And from Dish, I started prepping a little bit. When I didn't know how to do something, I asked it in a question. So Dave would be like, I need you to blanch this case of asparagus. And I'd be like, so when you say blanching, you know, and you'd so wait Dave, for it. So Dave Shannon of La Possum fame? D- yeah, absolutely. So we go way back. Hmm. Um, and I think Dave looked at me and pretty much was like, you can cook, right? Yeah. So um, from washing dishes at Helen's, I got moved into uh, doing some light prep work there for Dave. And I think I had a distinct experience in that restaurant where one night somebody ordered a dish of foie gras, um, which I'd never had before in my life. And it was a misfire. So it didn't go out to a table or something. And uh, I was doing dishes that night and someone brought it back and said, hey, do you want this? And I ate it. And it was like nothing I had ever tasted in my life. And I remember that experience distinctly because it was just, uh, it was not noodle casserole it wasn't Hamburger Helper. There was like a level of just fat and acidity and none of these things I knew what they were, but I was just kind of blown away by it. So just to back up a little bit, how did you get tapped to do the prep work in the in the first place? Uh, I think it's a pretty natural progression for dishwashers in restaurants. If you've got your stuff locked down on the dish sink, you know, it doesn't take long for someone to pass some vegetables to you or can you strain this stock or can you put this away? Um, and Helen's is a pretty intimate kitchen. It's just a three-person line, um, an open kitchen, of course. There is a back kitchen now in Helen's it's, that never existed there before. I just stopped. It was the dish sink and then there was a wall. So is it's a kitchen that you say you, you prep and do service in the same area. It's not a separate kitchen. And so small things had been handed to me, and I think the natural progression in Helen's was from the dish sink you would get on the salad station. And that's what I worked myself to. I don't have any distinct, uh, you know, that foie gras changed food for me in a way, but I mean, I think I've always been built in a way to, on some level, take what I'm doing seriously and pour myself into it. I think it was natural for me to be, to want to do more. Uh, it interests me, and then I worked my way to the salad station, uh, and that interests me. Never was I thinking, hey, I'm not going to play music. I was going after that every day and recording and, and doing all that. And one night at Helen's, uh, the grill guy didn't show up, and I think it was Dave, the chef at the time, said, you know, do you want to get on on grill for the night? And I think the other great thing about an open kitchen in Helen's is you get to watch. I mean, you're literally on the line with two other people. So if you're not making anything, you're just you're just watching. But here's the thing. If you had a dishwashing job, I thought it's just a means to an end to kind of subsidize your, your rock star life or your budding rock star life. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure what... Um, I think it happens in all kitchens. I mean, interestingly enough, um, you know, Noah Sandoval of, of Oriole in Chicago had this same journey in Helen's restaurant. Um, oh, he was at Helen's too. He was at Helen's too. You know, I just think I've always had a level of curiosity. Doesn't mean I took it to anything naturally or did it well. I certainly messed up a lot in Helen's. I, I sold a swanky mac and cheese sauce one evening as vichyssoise to the entire dining room, and nobody said anything. That might be even more frightening. They were just eating cheese sauce as cold potato soup, and they loved it. So, <laughs> But, you know, I got on the grill that night. I failed miserably. 
a ton of sendbacks, a ton of overcooked meat, a ton of – I remember the chefs looking at me at some point and just being like, don't stop cooking. You know, mm-hmm. we were packed. Um, not not don't stop believing though. Yeah, don't – yeah, that <laughs> didn't happen. So, you know, from there I worked myself uh, – Dave had left Helen's at some point. And I worked myself over to the saute station. And so I basically knew all three stations now. And at that at that time, Helen's had some turnover in chefs. So some different people came in. And I worked with the guy Jason for a while. Nobody ever gave me the helm. I think the owners fully understood I was way out of my – I mean I knew everything. But I was in no position to run anything on any level. And then I got introduced to one day Andrew Manning – um, from Leslie to at the owner and said, Andrew's going to be the new chef here. And Andrew had been down at Sweetwater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this timeline is so fuzzy to me. I don't even know well, how Well, you're talking about 20, 20 years ago yeah, at this point. So, I mean, it was really pre-RVA dying explosion. Yeah, I, I mean, mean it, I came here for the first time in 2002 and yeah. people back then, you know, Three Monkeys and Helens and Acadia. <laughs> and, and, and now even, it's like unrecognizable. I mean, Scott's yeah. edition, people only started coining that, I think, circa 2012. Yeah. Before that, it was just a giant, you know, row of warehouses right. north of Broad Street. Yeah. And I mean, I knew um, Southern Culture and Stella's and Frog and the Redneck and I knew these names and, you know, but. A much different scene back then, for sure. It is fascinating to me, though, that all these names that we now recognize in the RVA dine scene as, you know, Patrick and Andrew got their start way back when and were working together with people like David Shannon and um, the chef at Oriole. So it's, it's, it's interesting that all of that was all of that was sort of already developing and well under underway at that point, 20 years ago before, you know. Yeah, I mean, recent... I, I certainly couldn't have imagined that never crossed my mind, ever owning a restaurant, cooking in Richmond. I mean, it wasn't anywhere in the cards. So I... you went into this as an aspiring musician. Did it dawn on you at the time as you made your way from dishwasher to uh, working the salad station and blanching to uh, working the saute station that you were slowly being sucked into the life of a chef? Yeah, I mean, I think as many musicians do, I mean, it's, uh, you're up late anyway, there's free beer, there's a ton of flexibility. I was never anyone to call out or not show up, but certainly, you know, it wasn't a job that someone was holding your feet to the fire. And I had started picking up, you know, a lot of little jobs. And once you get your foot in the door in cooking, that's what started to happen. You know, I, I was... At the original team, when Elwood Thompson's opened, I worked in that deli for a little while. I remember that job. Um, around this time, I was doing room service at the Jefferson. Oh, wow. At one point, I had three jobs. It was room service at the Jefferson, cook at Helen's, and receptionist at Austin's Hair Salon in Carytown because my friend <laughs> Beth owned it. <laughs> and so I remember I would work nights shift at Jefferson, get off, I'd go into Austin's and catch a nice rosemary steam you know i'd put the essential oils on the rocks and i'd work the receptionist counter and book like chin waxes and highlights and then i'd get over to helen's around two o'clock in the afternoon and then i'd play music and i was living though i mean i'm eating foie gras i'm sleeping on a bed in the jefferson when you know no one's looking and i'm steaming at a salon so i was living a pretty extravagant life but i was paying 200 bucks a month for a room on gray street with like 
10 other guys in the house. I think there's a Cameron Crowe screenplay in this yeah, or something. So. I mean, it sounds like you had all the the components of a rock star lifestyle. You had the foie gras, yeah. you had the hotel room. I mean, yeah. you weren't necessarily zero, staying in the suite. Zero but... in the bank, yeah. yeah zero <laughs> in the bank. Let me, let me, let's establish this because if you think ahead, like look how much rock stardom that David Shannon at La Possum has got. Do you guys chuckle? Like I'm sure he texted you when you got the Bon Appetit daughters. He has similarly been fitted and say, can you believe that this started – like, was there ever a moment where he took you behind the alley of like uh, of Helen's and he had like a Mr. Miyagi moment with you and is like karate? Yeah, yeah. No, no. Dave is um he's a rather quiet person and I I love Dave Shannon because when he's really pissed at you, he talks he talks at you without his mouth moving and it's frightening. You know, like his teeth are clenched, they're closed, and he's just like, don't ever. But there was no after-school special, like, somber moment where he said, listen, kid, look at me. You got to stop the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Not that Dave Shannon sounds like that. (laughs) You're going to become a chef. You're going to be back in this town in 20 years. You're going to be nationally known and known to rock a microphone. But that didn't happen, though. Yeah, I think, think, you know, and, and Noah speaks to this a lot as Dave as a mentor. I think Dave is this, and I don't know how he would feel about this, but for me, this kind of calming centered sense of just discipline and endurance you know uh, aside from our our relationship personally i think noah and myself look at dave he's had a long long career in richmond and we look at la possum and marvel because he's i mean that that place is just dave shannon in and out and there's something completely just so respectable about that. Someone being so true to their instincts and their passions and their love, which is really hard to do in this industry after that many years, mm-hmm. you know, and not either be cynical about it, jaded, or just flat burned out. And, and Noah and Dave have a, have a closer relationship, but Dave has always been this voice without even having to say it of don't quit, like stick to your guns, trust your instincts, work hard, take what you do seriously have fun while you're doing it. You know, those things have always come across through his mentorship. And even when we did the pop-ups, Dave was the first person I'd call and be like, I need 30 steak knives tonight. No problem. I'm short 20 plates. No problem. Um, His wait staff would come up and work, you know, and a lot of chefs would be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You're taking my staff or, you know, just completely supportive. Um, And that didn't miss a beat. I mean, I left the city for 13, 14 years and when I got back to Richmond, you know, Dave was like, hey, I'm opening this place, La Possum. I'd, I'd love if you could help out in some capacity. Did you ever work there? Yeah, I worked there for a year and a half. Well, hold that thought because yeah. we're going to talk about we're this 12, 13 year journey. Yeah. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Patrick Phelan, chef and co-owner of Long Oven, which was just honored by Bon Appetit as number three on its list of best new restaurants in America. Our co-host today is the venerable Justin Lowe, restaurant critic at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Uh, I do want to quote again from these Bon Appetit honors before you continue um, with your kind of, you know, the Joe Dirt story, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) I'm quoting them uh, in their honors here in September 2019. The brick and mortar long oven, which finally opened last year, we're talking 2018, is mind-bogglingly good. Each dish so technically precise, so truly dedicated to ingredients, not to mention so, so pretty. This is very beautiful and very serious food served in a very beautiful and very serious space. That's deep, man. Bon Appetit has millions of followers. To get that imprimatur, um, you guys just, you know, and, and, and the crazy thing about it is when you were a pop-up, and you're going to tell us this story, at Sub Rosa, 
they were already the, the expectations that came down the pike of saying, you know, long of it. It was like, you know, it was like uh, this massive draft pick. Like I remember when Shaquille O'Neal was drafted, like Shaquille O'Neal's going to change the NBA. Well, long of going to change RVA Dine. That must have put a tremendous amount of stress on you. I think it did and it didn't. The way we arrived back in Richmond, we were somewhat conscious of, of just of coming in slow and steady with a soft foot um, and being, I think, in our lives at a, a point of, of humility um, and, and, and gracious for the things we had, you know, I mean. So backtrack for me. Let's yeah. go back to when you left Richmond, when you left Helen's and that scene yeah. and the gig in and 10 jobs a day. Yeah. Was this around 2000? Uh, 2000, 2001. Um, I just put out uh, a record. Um, my the last record I did, uh, and Andrew had already left for Italy, so he was in Alba. Andrew Manning. Andrew Manning. Yeah. Um, and and just real quickly, you know, Andrew was for all intents and purposes my chef, my mentor that taught me everything I know about food. I cooked with him for well over five years at Helen's and. He taught me bread. He taught me butchery. He taught me ethics around food. He told me when it was terrible. He told me when I needed to do better. Um, and he respected my work ethic, and, and we had had a long relationship um, around well, food. What was your first impression of Andrew when you met him? Uh, I thought he was young. He was a year older or a year younger than me. He'll probably laugh at that. I think he's a year younger than me. Um, we're both October, so he's not not by much. But uh, <laughs> um you know, he was this tattooed kind of punk rocker guy, um, and he came into Helen's with a ton of ambition. Um, I think he really dove into it and immediately started doing a different style of food. Um, and, you know, it's a different restaurant back then. It wasn't built. Uh, I think we were kind of in food was transitioning. We were kind of in survival mode. Um, we all probably drank too much both front and back of house. I think everybody just lived a little, everybody lived a little too hard. But uh, um, Andrew came in and he's like, you know, we don't buy bread. We make three kinds of bread. We do all this stuff. Um, and I learned a lot quickly from him. Um, Did the two of you instantly bond or was it more of an evolving relationship? I, th I think it was an evolving relationship. Um, you know, it was a three-person line and we had, a, we had a guy on the line back in those days, Eric Merle, who... I think they had a, a, a closer relationship. Andrew was also from Richmond, um, grew up here. So he had a network of people. You know, I'm a military kid, so I knew some people, but I, I certainly didn't have the connections he did. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where, and I say this to young chefs all the time now, you know, it's like, what should I do in a kitchen? Um, you know, what what does a chef want to see? And, and ultimately, I always tell someone some version of they just – a chef wants you to work, like work. Use both hands. Be clean. Be smart. But work. But, but go after your, How you is know? your heart in this if, if you just cut a CD, if you just cut an album? I don't see how you can throw yourself wholeheartedly into the culinary life and into the rock yeah. star life. Well, I think visually food, that approach to it started to really get under my skin. I started to really enjoy plating more mm -hmm. so than – prepping. Were you getting job offers to, for, to leave to other restaurants? No, no, not back. Nobody knew what I would. Yeah, not at all. I mean, if poaching was going on, I certainly was not in that basket. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think artistically, I started to connect to um, 
visually putting food on a plate. And I really loved that experience of it. Um, I loved seeing people react to food visually. Um, and Helen's was a great place for that. You know, that open kitchen, you had, um, much like our kitchen now, you had a front seat to kind of that experience. Um, so Andrew had left for Italy. Um, I had put out this record and, you know, he asked me if, if I'd come over, um, and, and cook with him for a while. And I didn't know what that would mean, but I was also at a point in my life where, um, I had some relationship stuff going on back in those days. I always had some relationship thing going on, but it was a good time to get out of town. Let's put it that way. 2001, 2002. Yeah. 2001. Um, and I needed kind of a reframing. I, I kind of had to come back and just felt like I needed to kind of do a reset and see where I was going. Um, and at this point I was a solo artist and it was tricky. It wasn't like having a band, um, my last record was probably some of the greatest musicians. I got to Paul Watson, a longtime musician here that's played with Sparkle Horse, uh, a number of bands, great cornet player, amazing musician. Um, you know, Champ Bennett that went on to New York. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of, I mean, Jim Thompson, who played with Bioritmo for years, was way back in Guara. In the so back let of the me day, understand so. this. Andrew's in Italy. Yeah. You had the chance to go to Italy. You decided to go to New York? No. Uh, I went to Italy. Uh-huh. Um, I stayed for, I have no idea, maybe three, four months. Mm. Um, Grinzani Cavour sits, you know, between the Swiss and French Alps. Sure. It's right in the middle of the Nebbiola vineyards. Um, just, How did you afford this? Were you getting paid? Were you just going to No, we um No, uh, we ended up— um, He was a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> the chef that brought us over got us, you know, we bounced around a lot. We either chef, There were two restaurants. There was one in Alba and then was uh, one in Mondavi. Uh, we either slept above that restaurant or we stayed in what was probably an illegal renting situation because these were apartments that were unfinished. So there was no hot water, maybe well, just exposed. This is bohemian European life. Yeah, and some, somebody <laughs> would come to you and be like, you guys need to be out tomorrow. And then you would call, um, you know, Ricardo who brought us over and he'd be like, I'll find you a place to stay. And basically you lived off the restaurant. You, you were like living like Ratatouille. Yeah, pretty much. You drank your, you drank your beer at night. You ate the food in the restaurant. Um, and it was, it was beautiful. It was magical. Wow. By the time I got there, Andrew had already had a pretty good handle um, on the language. He picked it up very quickly. I'm not built for languages at all, so um, it was very difficult for me uh, to learn Italian. Um, and well, so what prompted him to invite you to come with him to Italy in the first place? I think um, we just had a mutual respect for each other, and it, it plainly was just. Um, he worked his ass off and I think he looked at me and he knew I was going to work my ass off. Like, um, he knew I wasn't going to come over there and just be like, okay, cool. Italy. Like he had a, an amazing opportunity, um, in Grinzana Cavour, which is this beautiful castle that houses the Northern Truffle Association up in Alba. Um, great name for a garage band, by the way, yeah. the Northern <laughs> Truffle Association. Come on. But, you know, it's it's northern truffle. It's Maseratis and great cars pulling up every night. It's exquisite dining room. And um, you basically and I, I'm not going to get this correct, but it's kind of pseudo state run. There's what is it in Italy? And, and it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's yeah, exactly. It's and were it's, you were you were you did you have some money in your pocket? already? No. I always want to ask no. people this, like, where was your head? You could just pack everything up in a bag, yeah. you know, go to Dulles or Atlanta and fly yeah. into Rome. Well, and just... these, these were the days in Richmond where like literally um, 
I mean, I think my last house was on Hanover Avenue and me and my roommate paid 400 bucks each for the entire top floor. I mean, I had a bedroom, I had an office, we had a, you know. But um, no money in the bank? No I money. Mean, did you, did no you have money to, in the did bank. You have to, I mean, did you have to dip into your own savings to cut the CD? Uh, and all that stuff? Like, I'm trying to get... All my CDs I dipped into a little bit, but that's because I have champagne taste and a beer wallet. I mean, I got a budget, but I usually spent that pretty mm. quickly. So what was Andrew's plan when he went over to Italy? Was his plan to stay there long term or just to get the experience and come back and open a restaurant? Um, I don't think any of us knew. Um, I think Andrew would sit here and say he, he didn't know. I think he saw it as a great opportunity. Andrew is um, – he's a chef through and through. I mean I, I think about a lot of things all day, but I don't think about food. And Andrew, um, you know, it's it's legitimately tattooed on his body. I mean he, he is – passionate and thinks of food all the time. He thinks of flavor and he thinks of, and having been in Italy, he would be the first person to tell you that if it was up to him, he'd, he'd make wine. I think he loves wine more than he loves food. He has a tremendous palate. But, you know, I think, I, I can't speak to the reasons he went over there, but I would say neither of us really had it figured out. Um, I think he saw it as an opportunity. Like I said, he grew up here. I think he was excited to go to another country. And, for me, um, the, the castle in Northern Italy, is, it, w- it can be an isolating experience um, if you don't know the language. It's, it's up in the mountains uh, and they're long days. You know, It's not so much here where you have a network in your own apartment and stuff. You just sleep. Um, we did a lunch each day. We'd break for about two hours, come back and prep for dinner. Um, and so there's amaz- there's amazing side of it where you're just, you know, you're going to Torino for fish. You're bartering with some guy that just came out of the mountains for berries. You're going out on the hill and you're picking caper berries off the castle wall. But you're not enjoying your weekends with a principessa on a moped or something? Oh, yeah. We'd rent some Vespas every once in a while. Mm. It's it's magical. Um, So were the two of you the only non-native speakers in the restaurant at the time? In the castle. Uh, In the castle? Sounds like The Shining. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Ricardo, who had brought us over, actually has Richmond ties to all the way back to Amici. Wait, Rick, oh, Amici. I thought Ricardo yeah. is like your, your fixer that's finding you a mattress. Yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Yeah. This is like a rich man's so, Joe Dirt. So he had brought Andrew over and those guys. And, and Ricardo is, for all intents and purposes, Andrew's mentor. And he could probably speak more to that. But that's, that's really what got Andrew there was a connection of him going home. And, and he's still there and still has a, a restaurant So you there. left after three, four months? I got to this point, and I'm not sure what it was. I I woke up, you know, I would some days just sit out behind that castle and look out. Um, and I was overwhelmed with this feeling of I don't want to cook anymore. I don't want to be in a kitchen. And I don't want to play music. Um, and it was kind of an anxiety-filled time, part of life. I, I just had no idea. I had started getting very interested in, um, before I left here, I started going up to Richmond Hill a lot, which is still up, um, in Churchill. Um, and I started doing little stints where I would stay there. Um, you know, that you can go do a retreat there. You can do what's called a silent retreat where you just go there for three days and you don't, you don't talk. Um, and there's church service and these kinds of things. But I, I started going there just to, kind of figure out where I was going. But in that journey, I also started going to some meetings around food security and social justice and these types of things. And they were starting to influence me. This work was starting to influence me. And I think I 
arrived at a point in Italy where I was like, I so badly wanted to be involved in that, but I had no means to get there. Like I had no means to raise my hand in one of these meetings. I had no resume. I had not gone to, I'd, I'd gone to VCU basically, um, and done okay, but it always competed with music. I had, you know, some decent C's, but nothing really. I'd got some credits, but music always won. You know, if it was go on tour or go to class, it well, was But you felt like you needed a public policy degree to have a hand, to have a, like a Jose Andres, globally I, known, but he can yeah, assert himself. That's very kind of even my, even in the same, yeah, but. Well, I yeah. mean, he gets faded <laughs> in Bon Appetit. You are, I mean, yeah. don't, don't try to toot your horn, maybe. <laughs> but I mean, it was that. I, I think I just felt like, and I was surrounded by people that had, definitely had a different journey than me and gone to school and grad school and all these things. You know, what it really came down to is I wanted to go back to school. That's what I wanted to do. And I found that on the hill in Italy. And I was like, how am I going to make this happen? Um, I got back to the U.S. I didn't have that great of a GPA. And I just started investigating schools that had adult programs. By this time, I'm 30 approaching 30 years old, I wow. think, around there. Um, and I found this school in called Trinity in Connecticut that had an IDP adult program. And basically it was one of these things, two things attracted me to it. If you got in, they, they paid for not your living expenses, but your classes and books and those types of things. And you got accepted on an application that was more of a life application. It was less about your GPA or this um, I went up there for an interview as it, it was three interviews and finally got accepted. I'd never been to new England in my life, let alone Hartford. Uh, and so short condensed story, I loaded up my car. I drove to Hartford. Uh, I started my first day of class in a law class and, you know, had a panic attack it was like, what am I doing sitting here with? A law class, would, a law class will do that to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not sure. knowing, you know, any of this language um, and just doing like, what have, what have I done? Was that a master's degree you were pursuing this or under, a second this, bachelor's? This undergrad, yeah. Oh. Um, and I I'd brought a few credits from VCU, but I mean, I was basically starting out of the gate. Um, and So was the idea that you would be structuring your own course, course load when you were there around policy specific I I chosen I chosen a public policy and law degree mm -hmm. um, I arrived in Hartford I googled best restaurant in Hartford and uh, Billy Grant's place Grant came up in West Hartford not the elbow room yeah <laughs> and uh, I went over to Grant's that day Billy is this amazing just you know larger than life guy comes out he looks at my resume it says Italy on it all that and he's like can you start tonight? And I was like, yeah, I can start tonight. I'd started on the grill that night, uh, 160 seat restaurant. I probably did 80 fillets, porterhouse, all that stuff. Wait, that but night. you, you still had not dropped, you're not dropped out from, I'm, I'm in school. You're in school I needed a job. This. So okay. while, while this program was paid for, it wasn't paid for, they didn't pay for yeah, rent yeah, yeah. or living expenses, all that. So I, I worked full time. I started at mm -hmm. grants. Um, uh, my wife was also the pastry chef, uh, in that kitchen at Grant's at the time. She didn't know me, wouldn't know me for two more years, never never talked to me. It's actually quite cruel to me, but... Um, so the two of you <laughs> met pre... Well, she was cruel to her to come York. on this show, but I... You know, I Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Met, Absolutely. Met in Connecticut. Okay. So, um, 
And so there I was in Grants. I had a full-time position on the grill. I started every day at three. Um, I had all morning classes. Uh, if I had a test the next day, it got clipped up on the ticket line, um, and I'd study while I cooked that night. Uh, and Wait, the test on the ticket line? What? I would just study during, you know. Uh, I was, you would put the test on the ticket line? I would put whatever I was studying, yeah. I would clip it up for the night or I'd have it on my station, and I'd, I'd study. Do you mind my asking you, and we've gotten personal with other chefs before, feel free not to ask it. How were you on, you know, dealing with liquor and beer? Okay. Uh, I've always been, you know, I've always known my limits. Uh Um, You know, in full disclosure, my drug experience was me finding out pretty quickly that I'm probably not built for drugs. I'm pretty too inward and emotional (laughs) that I don't need anything to... Clonopin is great for panic attacks. Yeah, you know. so I'm not sponsored by Clonopin. Yeah. So, um, you know. <laughs> Insert ad here. No. Yeah. <laughs> or lawsuit. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin yeah. Farzad. You're listening to Patrick Phelan. He's chef and co-owner of Long Oven. We're also joined in studio by Justin Lowe, restaurant critic at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And you did get your JD. You're a practicing attorney. I did. So I know a little bit about uh, for boring, my part, stressful I, law classes. I still have an unopened LSAT prep kit from the year 1998. <laughs> I couldn't quite. Do it. There's no but, time like the present to incur all that law school debt. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. Continue, <laughs> sir. Continue with your vision quest. Yeah, so um, so at this point, your your life is pretty much all food. I mean, you're studying food policy, food security, you said. And well, then, it's public policy and oh, law. Public policy, yeah, okay. Yeah. And you're you're working in the kitchen um, in your spare time. So at, where, where did music fit in? Music was, uh, and, and strangely enough, almost to this day, just another life. Aside from... Um, you know, writing some stuff on the keyboard in the subway when you get to New York and, you know, with little apps and stuff like that. I've never, I've never recorded again since But you since had last record. entirely given up on it at this point. Uh, it certainly wasn't in my mind. Um, you know, I'd, I found something to pour myself into. Cooking had become, I'd, I'd gotten enough facilities to go in a restaurant and get on a station, hold my own, do my thing. Um, but... You know, you said, how are you with, with drinking or something? I, I think reflecting on it, going to Connecticut, I was never a great student. Um, I usually did better at the things I was interested in than the things I wasn't interested in. But part of me knew to be successful at this, I needed to leave. I kind of needed to leave the restaurant world where I was at, leave the social circles I were, was in. I needed to go just live in school. Um, and, and that's what I did. I did, you know, that four-year program I did in three years. I took summer classes whenever I could. Um, I was usually the last person in the library on a Saturday night when they were flicking the lights. I had a ton of tutors and army to figure out how to write. Um, Trinity kind of prides itself as a writing school. I'd never written 30 pages on anything. Um, and I connected to a couple professors there my first year, my first law professor that I freaked out with, Ned Cabot. I remember him to this day. He's this kind of Jimmy Stewart style guy. You could just see him ripping up a courtroom in his early years. And I turned in my first paper. I got an F. He said, you know, Mr. Fallon, if you'd like to give it another go. Um, I turned in that paper, I think, five or six times over the semester. And the last time I got it back, it said, welcome back to school. Oh, that's and it great. took that much. Um, and I met a few people like that along the way. Um, Laurel Baldwin Ragavan, who had done a ton of work um, in South Africa around building uh, a healthcare system post-apartheid and wrote this um, 
a couple great books. Um, and she's who got me interested in, in human rights. Um, and, and I got to do at Trinity exposed to just all these amazing things. I mean, I spent a summer transcribing um, stories from a photographer that had um, interviewed women who had contracted AIDS during the Rwand- uh, Rwandan genocide who had had a child as a result of, of that rape and got AIDS. Um, and so I spent a whole summer basically hearing a, a question in Afrikaans, a response, and then a translator, and then I had to transcribe this for his book, which was just kind of blew my world to pieces. You know, it was it – was, these were stories that were just uh, – they were so horrific they didn't seem real. Um, and it was actually quite unsettling as you did this for hours and hours that it became recording words – and you lost sight of just kind of you had to turn yourself off from it emotionally. But that first year at Trinity and year and a half, everything about my life changed. Everything from what I thought about relationships to what I wanted to do to, you know, it, it was it was a sea change moment for me. Um, and so pouring myself into school was like not an effort. Um, I certainly didn't do well at everything. I I may have taken statistics. Well, what did you think times, you were going to do after school? I mean, this is, this seems to be another ineluctable pull. I don't know where music is left in this, but between the chef's journey, the culinary journey, and then social justice and human rights. Yeah, at at this point, strangely enough, cooking just became a means to an end. Mm. Like it really just became about getting through Trinity. And what was your first degree. job after Trinity? Um, uh, I had done um. I applied for a fellowship at Amnesty International my second year at Trinity. I didn't get it. I applied for it my last semester there, and I got it. And I got to go to Amnesty International um, right by Penn Station in New York. Um, and that semester, I'd also worked with a wonderful woman, uh, Karen Robinson, um, and we launched a pilot program for uh, a Passport to Human Rights. So this was basically putting new new language into curriculum in elementary schools in New York. And we started at PS1. Uh, so when you first got to New York, it wasn't for food. No. Uh, my goal was to get a job with a nonprofit, hopefully Amnesty International, um, and continue work in human rights education. Uh, a little before this, uh, Megan and I had started dating. Um, we both still worked at uh, at grants and Megan had lived in Connecticut her whole life and she had this amazing opportunity um, Billy knew uh, Chef Danielle Danielle Balud and um, you know Megan decided I, I want to go try something else uh, and she got hired at Danielle hmm. and when she got hired at Danielle I knew I wanted to go to New York. I wasn't going to do the kind of work I wanted. Danielle, for our listeners, is a, such a prominent restaurant in Manhattan when I lived there. I mean, it was impossible to get a table. Yeah, absolutely. You get to be the pastry chef in Danielle. That's that's international stardom. Yeah. Well, she got in at, at the bottom. She spent her, her year there scooping a lot of quenelles. Uh-huh. Uh, that's about all, you know. Um, and that was also, excuse me, the first year uh, Dominique Ansel had just become the pastry chef there. Uh and so a, a great opportunity. Of course, Dominique's gone on to Cronut fame and just— Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys moved to New York together? She moved a little bit before me. Um, I remember I'd still be home in Connecticut. I'd, I would make her call me from the subway. She'd stay on the phone the whole time, her walk home. She was staying with a friend in Queens. She'd be like, okay, I made it home. 
she lived there for a while. And then I had a friend in the Lower East Side and I would bounce in for weekends when I was looking for work. Um, so around this time, things weren't going to pan out at Amnesty International. In fact, the whole human rights education program had pretty much been, uh, for all intents and purposes, ended. They had gotten a new executive director and Amnesty decided to go back to kind of more of their, their core mission statement, which was more advocacy and less on the, you know, for nonprofits, it's tough. Uh, this was around this period where everyone's competing for dollars. Uh, and, you know, I would have loved to have gotten a job, but I found myself with an apartment in Brooklyn. So Meg and I got an apartment right in Williamsburg, this awful railroad, yeah. two-window place. And unlike Richmond, New York's not the kind of place you're like, oh, let's hang out for two weeks and see if I get a job. Like, you're going to mm -hmm. get evicted. Yeah. <laughs> so, you need to find something. You need to find something yeah. immediately. So uh, I had called a friend, um, Brad Thompson, who'd come into Connecticut, who had been a chef for celebrities, a consulting chef, knew a lot of people. And he said, hey, my friend Cornelius Gallagher needs a chef. Cornelius Gallagher uh, came through up through Danielle, uh, a fascinating character, uh, fascinating man, had won Best Junior Chef in New York, just stellar, stellar resume. Um, left Danielle, went to Oceana, got a Michelin star there. And then, you know, a surprise to everyone left that and became a, a catering chef. He was just like, I'm out. Which I would find out later that that Neil's main goal in doing that was to raise his own capital, his own money to open his restaurant in New York. So I do want to unpack some of this. Uh, everybody has to read Hot Box, Inside Catering, the food world's riskiest business, a chunk of which is devoted to your adventures and misadventures in catering in New York. And the revealing things, a friend who's been on the show, Hunter Hopcroft of Real Local RVA, says it was, to his mind, it's one of the best business books ever written. You're wow. hearing this from a Darden and MBA. Ted Yeah, that's awesome. And he says, you absolutely should read Patrick's uh, chapter. Can you tell us kind of shortly what that what that kind of baptism by fire was like? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a baptism. Neil met me. He's. It was a couple question interview. It was, do you work fast? Do you work clean? You start tomorrow. Um, I got dropped in a kitchen as a sous chef. I think I was making 15 bucks an hour. Um, there were three other sous chefs and um, probably 15, 20 other cooks. Um, Sonia and Castle uh, was in its original location. They were in Hell's Kitchen at the time. Uh, and there I was going over to Hell's Kitchen each day, and uh, I'd never catered in my life, certainly not at this level. Um, and within two months, um, you know, I got handed a lot of stuff I guess other sous chefs didn't want to do. I got handed the schedule. Uh, someone handed me a truck route. I didn't know anything about Manhattan where you would place four or five deliveries in a day. Um, I remember on MapQuest kind of connecting these dots trying to figure out what was the best <laughs> scheme of all this. Uh, I got handed payroll shortly after. Um, I, I got thrown in. Um, I also, in that first month, went as a kitchen assistant um, and found myself in the River House on East 57th Street I know, um, well. yeah. in, in Henry Kissinger's apartment and the Rothschilds and several other people. So I was kind of having this moment looking out, you know, over the East River of just being like, what the hell's going on? How the other know? half lives. I mean, I'm in Kissinger's place, which you could argue might be a human rights violation. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't accost him. Like I yeah. read about, you. um, you know, and I remember going home some nights telling Megan, I might get killed for what I heard in this apartment tonight. I can't speak about this at all, you know, but this was just a completely, and I was going in the MoMA and I was going in Gotham hall and I was going in the IC, 
e-building and I was just going in these insane places um, and just got, I mean, at this point, forget about human rights, forget about music. It, Meg and I are both working 17 hour days and that's all you know. It's subway work, subway work, subway work. And I, got, I got to ask you by way of transition, you, you had Richmond in your heart, this idea that you would ultimately end up here. Things started heating up here around 2010, 2011, yeah. the RVA dine scene. Yeah. And if I had to timestamp it for everybody, you come back here, your pop-up with Sub Rosa, the very esteemed bakery is around 2014. How yeah, did that all come together? A, a little before, um, you know, uh, the very first pop-up was at, at Actually, at, at Shaco Denim. Wow. Matt Rowe? Shaco Denim? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Small world. Go ahead. Um, and we did 20 courses there or something. Uh, it was this great, you know, all the sewing tables are down there. Yeah. So you could set out like 50 plates for four courses. It was like a band that was given every instrument and we felt the need to use all of it. It was terrible. I mean, the food was great, but it was me, Andrew, how, and Megan. How do I get my hand around the economics <laughs> of pop-ups? And, and Justin, you can chime in here too. Like me, if this journalism thing doesn't work out, and clearly it isn't, I mean, I'm slumming it here, uh, I'll open a Persian pop-up. Do you just front all the money yourself? Do you, um, you know, you, what's your objective? If you're trying to get enough traction, like with the guys at ZZQ, then you might consider a brick and mortar. What was in your head, you know, back in 2014? Uh, pop-ups, I think, are – unless it's coming straight out of a restaurant, so you've got that relationship where a chef says to you, hey, when we close down, you can use the place tonight or whatever. If it's off-site, um, for us, it's all out of your pocket, all of it. It's a lot of trips to world market, getting plates as much as you can. Um, it's a great place for that. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's <laughs> rentals of getting wine glasses and that. And it's – you know, one advantage of my time in New York was – you know, while Andrew was, I think, having this amazing experience of getting exposed to all this this product, but also being somewhat isolated where he was, um, not in the mix of a big food scene, I think really just honed who he is as a chef. I simultaneously was just getting F&B chops. You know, I'm doing $4 million parties with a P&L in front of me. And I've got to hold food at this cost. And I've got to hold rentals at this cost. Design has to be here. Payroll can't reach this. So I'm getting all these. Did you come back to Richmond, you and your wife, liquid, with some money in your pocket finally? That was the plan, yeah. Um, and so Andrew gets back. Andrew's back in the picture and he says, we got to pop up. Yeah, I think, you know, about five years before that, we maybe longer. Andrew and I had always talked about if, mm -hmm. if we did a restaurant at some point, we said to each other, "We let's do it together. I mean, that had always been So there. that was a conversation you had had how many years ago? I think uh, before we got back from the pop-ups, probably eight years before that. I mean, it was probably soon around after I'd left Italy. And, you know, once I got to New York, Andrew and I stayed in touch a lot. I would shoot him photos of stuff I was doing. He would shoot me stuff in Italy. Um, I think we both admired that from afar, kind of where we were. So even as you were pursuing your life as a student, um, you know, with this law and policy degree, that was always sort of percolating in the air, that the idea of eventually potentially mo moving back to Richmond to open a not, restaurant? Not even really. I don't think it was real. I think while I was at Trinity, it was always go get a policy job. Like I wanted to be— That was your focus. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I thought for a moment that was politics. And then I did a semester at, at with the legislature in Connecticut and found out really quickly that's the last thing I wanted to be in. Um, <laughs> you know, so I didn't know where that was going to fit. But it really wasn't until I got this catering job. 
And just very quickly, the catering job, about two years in, through a series of circumstances of hard luck and just weird coincidences, Neil Gallagher leaves Sonia and Castle. Uh, and I think plainly these owners are faced with this guy doesn't come from anywhere. Like we could do a press release tomorrow. Nobody's going to know who he is. But he knows everything. He knows everything about this company. He knows payroll. He knows the trucks. He knows everything. And they they offered me the job. I became the executive chef of this luxury events firm. And in that moment, I remember coming in that day. I tore out the office. I painted it. I put in my computer. I set it up the way I wanted it. And it wasn't so much like, what am I going to do in my life now? Like, this was it. Like, I was like, I run this kitchen. Every, you had so much invested in every, it. I was invested point. in it. Mm-hmm. And, and everything had led to that point. And then it was like, okay, this is where I'm at. And, and that's what I would do for the next, you know, about eight years. Um, I would be the chef of that company. And it, it was hands down to this day, just, you know, one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. You have about nine minutes to unpack the long oven adventure for us. When did you decide to move back here? When did it inspire you to come back? What were the stars that aligned? Yeah, I think we, you know, we finally, Andrew wanted to come home back to Richmond. Um, Meg and I had gotten married down here. um, And I think we knew we wanted to start a family at some point. We didn't want to do that in New York. And we had started to notice RVA Dine we had started to know some great things going on. Great restaurants popping up, people going after it, um, you know, a great community um, of peers. And Andrew had his family here, of course, um, and I had a connection here. And, you know, admittedly, financially, we knew it'd be a little bit easier to come into a smaller city than, I mean, there was just, opening a place in Brooklyn was no option. We just didn't have that that kind of money whatsoever. Um so very condensed story, that that kind of nest egg of moving down here with money. Um, my daughter ends up being born extremely early. Um, Megan and I spend four months at Inova Fairfax, wow. uh, live in the Ronald McDonald house. Um, Andrew's father passes away that year. So after that Shaco Denim pop-up, that original pop-up, we stop cooking. A, a year and a half goes by. It's just a blur. Mm. Like I start helping uh, – I'd been working with Dave at La Possum, um, odd jobs here, still doing a little consulting in New York. Andrew had, I don't know, 50 W-2s that year. We're hopping around. And, you know, I'm the place we were going to live at for two weeks to find a house, Meg and I lived for two years, um, you know, on and Mount Olympus Farm, friends, friends of ours north of the city. And some at some point, we all came together and looked, all we can do is start cooking. That's all we can do. I don't know how we get money to get a restaurant. I don't know how we get brick and mortar, any of that. Let's just start popping up. And um, I'd called Everham at some point and said, hey, can we we do a dinner at Sub Rosa? Uh, and that turned into Everham just saying, look, um, look, man, if you leave the place nice and then you found it on Sundays, it's yours. Yeah, that's what blows my mind. You know, we did we all these shows. We had a live show with Brittany Anderson early this year. And it's amazing how many other people help you know, on the way in. She talked about Michelle Williams or Lee Gregory and everybody where it's supposed to be a zero-sum competitive thing. Mm -hmm. Shannon brings you back into the mix. You know, all these people saying we're going to pull it together. The guy at Sub Rosa who's getting all of this national glory is like as long as you leave it in the shape or better shape that you found it. And Evram's always been been a great friend. And, you know, so we went there and we started 
Um, the only thing we really had at that point is um, I put up a website. We, I, we had to call it something. Um, Long Oven I found down in the dregs of the internet one night um, as a, uh, you know, long and short ovens. It refers to the longer the length of your arm you can put in an oven, the lower the temperature. Um, and so long ovens were in encampments and neighborhoods in the South that would burn all day where, where either soldiers would go to heat their food or, or neighborhoods. And they became these natural meeting places because you had to stand there and wait for your food to heat up and people would talk and it, it seemed to resonate. You know, it was like, this makes sense. It's kind of a meeting place. Um, the community oven. Yeah, the community oven. And so you were really the Shaquille O'Neal, Zion Williamson coming down the draft pike of RVA Dine. <laughs> I know there are 50,000 metaphors in there, but there's an architect, Amrit Singh, you know, a mutual friend of ours who uh, I'm introduced to him four or five years ago. And he says, dude, long oven. You know, it's like plastics in the graduate, like long oven. And then suddenly, like, you know, the, the reputation really precedes it for a pop up to get listed, I think it was by Bon Appetit back then as one of the, you know, most exciting up-and-comers in the United States is really kind of, it blows my mind. I mean, you were an executive chef at a catering company. Yeah. In New and, York. It, and it was game changing for us that that first Bon Appetit nod. I mean, the pop-ups went to about 200 people on the wait list. It's only 36 seats. It didn't, it didn't take much to sell these things out. Um, and you know, I often tell people if we would have opened a place back then, we we probably would have closed. Um, those four years doing pop-ups taught us a lot about each other. We all had to, you know, Andrew came out of Italy. Megan came out of New York. I came out of catering. Um, I even think now, even long oven brick and mortar a year, we're just starting to find an identity. It's a three-person partnership. We're all very different people. Um you know, I'm I'm kind of back to more F and B administrative, chasing money, and and Andrew, for all intents and purposes, you know everything. I I always tell people 99% of what you put in your mouth in that restaurant, aside from pastry, wine, coffee, food, is is Andrew Manning. It's out of that guy's head. How know? did you raise money for this brick and mortar thing? Uh, it was it was hitting the ground. Ask. Um, it was. We had investment a couple times that fell through. What does an investor want in a restaurant? I've always asked people this. Are you yeah. looking to get something over a bond or a CD? Yeah. Are you looking for prestige, being able to bring your friends by and say, I was yeah. one of the equity I th I backers? Think we, I think we found the best investor you could ever find um, in that our investor believes believes in the spirit of what we're doing. Um, you know, while I, I would like to hit all our numbers and hit, you know, in, in payback and all those things make all that happen. It took a while to find an investor that was believed in Long Oven, believed in the three of us who all left jobs um, and left careers to go after something for Andrew and I in our 40s and, and Meg in our 30s uh, and to risk everything. And we found a person that I think above all appreciates that and, and jumped full into that partnership. So how did your identity and the concept of the restaurant evolved from that first set of pop-ups in 2014 to now, you know, the, the brick and mortar that you have in Scott's edition? Um, you know, I, I think, as I just said, I think it's still evolving. Um, obviously, having a restaurant is, is beneficial that we can store things, we have our own space, we can develop flavor over long amounts of time where pop-ups were just really like, I mean, we we're always just gunning it. We were usually prepping when we showed up at Sub Rosa and 
you know, you're not fermenting things for months. You're not aging for this or that. You have no place to store anything. Um, so and, some of the cool things you do now with like koji and all that stuff, absolutely. that didn't, that wasn't part of the original concept. Yeah. I mean, I think it was always there. We just didn't have the means to do it. You mm. know, we didn't, we all worked full-time jobs too while we did pop-ups. So it was like prep them in the middle of the night and get it done. But I think the biggest change in the, in the brick and mortar certainly is that is the customer aspect of it. You know, a pop-up, you buy a ticket and you're ready for a show and you've signed up and you can almost do anything you want at a pop-up. You know, you're like there to have a good time. Your, your expectations on if your glass gets wine, doesn't get topped off throughout the night or food shows up 10 minutes late, there's some dude standing back by an oven and they're in a bakery. You don't care. You're having a blast. Um, that is not the customer experience in a brick and mortar. A brick and mortar where you're spending how much for a tasting? <laughs> well, our, our tasting menu right now is 65. It was 110 when it was nine courses. We've uh -huh. shortened it. But yeah, I mean, the expectations are are massively greater um, and and the things you need to pay attention to for the customer to, you know, even this week for people to come in with the expectation they have after winning this number three is a tall order and we need to deliver on it, you know? Sir, you are to be congratulated, if I may editorialize for a minute. You talk <laughs> about expectations and where you came from and everything. You guys were not afraid to open up a brick and mortar after these guys kind of teed it up for you, like the most anticipated, you know, the Shaquille O'Neal of restaurant. I, I coined that, of course. I should get a royalty for it. And you were to be congratulated. For you to be a year, uh, a year old, essentially, and be listed by Bon Appetit as number three on its list of best new restaurants in America, I mean, that, that blows the mind, sir. So uh, mazel tov to you. And if you're ever interested in like a little side thing, you know, we here at Full Disclosure, we like to pride ourselves on going down market, high market. So if you ever want to do like, you know, a riblet and $2 long neck beers night, you know, we'll, we'll help you promote <laughs> well, it. Well, they do chicken we, we wings, chicken on, the wings on the patio. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm talking like, yeah. you know, I don't get the opportunity to say this a lot, but you don't need a lot of money to eat at Long Oven. Tell them, Justin. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Just Plenty. enter coupon code full D radio. <laughs> full disclosure, you guys, I cannot thank you enough. Patrick Phelan, uh, congratulations on your Bon Appetit honors, which I just keep coming and coming and coming. And, of course, Justin Lowe, practicing attorney and restaurant critic at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News and on iTunes. You can subscribe at link fullderadio.com. We are a veritable tasting menu of salted, pickled, and blanched sound bites. Full disclosure will, of course, try to record to most dietary restrictions, assuming you can get a reservation. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Thank you.